Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 69, The Fall of Albania. So no new Patreon supporters this month because, well, apparently when it rains, it pours. But a big reminder to everyone to go check out the brand new website. Uh, As of, I think, the last episode, I'm now including timelines and lists of major characters, uh, major kind of figures involved in every episode, in addition to the usual images. And these days there are a lot of images that I took myself on my various travels through these regions. So uh, yeah, a lot of extra content, a lot of fun, interesting stuff worth checking out, particularly for those timelines, because, you know, little insight into how I make these episodes, those timelines are the core of every single episode, because you can tell there's just a million events going on all at once, uh, and all these various parts of the regions that we're talking about, and the only way I can keep it straight at all in my head is to make a long and detailed timeline. So now, for the first time, I'm sharing all of those things that I'm making anyways with you. So go check them out. Uh, It'll help you keep up with the episodes and figure it all out. All right, so last time, the King of Hungary got into a little spat with the Emperor of Austria, straining relations as Hungary took advantage of Ottoman distraction elsewhere to make a secret peace with them. Then, Venice joined forces with the Grand Turkic Federation of Akkoyunlu, leading to an enormous battle in eastern Anatolia, where Ottoman gunpowder technology led to a crushing defeat for the, their enemies and basically resulted in Ottoman domination of Anatolia. Then, able to refocus on Europe, Mehmed attempted to attack Venetian territories north of Albania. After this, Failing at that, he moved to show his, uh, well, sort of rebellious Stephen of Moldavia, who had sort of betrayed him and uh, been all over the place diplomatically, a lesson. But, unfortunately, this meant traveling across the whole Balkans and engaging in a winter campaign, where facing scorched earth tactics meant, well, and a masterful ambush on the part of Stephen, Mehmet's army was badly defeated. Now, he's got a fresh alliance with the Crimean Tatars and is gathering yet another enormous army to mount an attack on Moldavia. The question is, can King Stephen, well, Voivoda Stephen, can he hold them off? Can he survive another major Ottoman assault? He was lucky one time. We'll have to see if he can be lucky again. Now, To begin, there's one major unresolved question about Mehmet's 1476 attack on Moldavia, and that is just how were the Tatars involved? One version has them conducting an invasion from the north before the Ottomans came in from the south. In this version, the Tatars are utterly defeated by the Moldavians. A Polish historian writing contemporaneously wrote that, quote, the fleeing Tatars discarded their weapons, their saddles and clothes, while some, as though crazed, drumped, jumped into the river Dnieper, end quote. The letters of the Khan to Mehmet when explained, then explained that further attacks on Moldavia were impossible after the devastating losses he and his people had just suffered. 
The other version, which is less popular with historians these days, but was preferred some decades ago, is that the Tatars invaded Moldavia alongside the Ottomans. Now, for obvious reasons, I'm going to go with the former story, as the contemporary evidence is very uh, persuasive, and, you know, I tend to trust modern historians more. So we'll say the Tatars attacked Moldavia on their own with perhaps 30,000 soldiers, largely cavalry, of course, and were devastated and forced to retreat. Thus, the Ottomans had to advance into Moldavia on their own. Now, that Ottoman force was led by Mehmet personally and consisted of perhaps as many as 90,000 soldiers. Sources exaggerate and claim 150,000 plus another 12,000 Wallachian vassal troops. So whatever the numbers were, this was a very substantial Ottoman army with the Sultan himself at its head. Now the Moldavians, well, obviously they were weakened in spite of their victory the previous winter. They couldn't bring out anywhere near that number of soldiers. And so they brought forth maybe 12 to 20,000. Uh, there are some references to Stephen using a scorched earth policy yet again, but he ultimately had to meet the Ottomans around the foothills of the Carpathian Mountains near the modern uh, Romanian city of Piatra Nemt. By the way, Piatra Nemt is a very lovely city. I, I stayed with some couch surfers there back uh, maybe five years ago. There's some cool fortresses and things in that region. Very nice. Anyway, so the battle began with the Ottomans being led into a forest before the Moldavians set that forest on fire, leading to some Ottoman casualties right at the start. The Ottomans then faced a devastating barrage of fire from Moldavian handguns, forcing the Janissaries to crawl instead of rushing into battle as they normally would. As the attack slowed down and casualties mounted, Mehmet rallied his personal guard and rushed in to turn the tide. This of course, inspired the Janissaries, and together they did turn the tide of battle. The Ottomans broke through the Moldavian defenses and engaged in brutal hand-to-hand -hand fighting. Ultimately, while there were heavy casualties on both sides, the Moldavians simply couldn't defeat the vastly larger Ottoman force in this kind of head-to-head -head slugfest, and so they were forced to retreat. Stephen took what remained of his force north into friendly Polish territory and planned his return. In the meantime, the Ottomans set about conquering the now undefended Moldavian lands. Or that's what you might think would have happened, except that the remaining Moldavian lands were in fact far from undefended. They were still littered with very well-defended fortresses. And so the Ottomans spent the last months of summer 1476 trying to take the fortresses of Sucieva and Nemt. Both attacks failed, with the Ottomans being forced to retreat as their supplies were running out and their army was being ravaged by cholera. Now, I'm going to post on the website an old photo I took of the fortress at Nemt uh, and the nearby monastery founded by Stephen the Great, which kindly gave me a place to stay and some food after I'd been robbed in Odessa and living off of guitar money. Uh, long story, but I have some good memories in this part of Romania. It's a lovely place, as I've said. Anyways, with the Ottomans back in their own territory, it was time to set things right for Stephen and his allies. 
first on their list was to take revenge on Basarab Laosha, who Stephen had supported to gain the throne in Wallachia, but who had allied and agreed to be an Ottoman vassal nonetheless. Now remember, Vlad the Impaler is now free, and at this moment, Stephen worked with the Hungarians to get Vlad an army of 30,000, which he could use to invade Wallachia from the west, as Stephen took the forces he had and invaded from the north. Together, they successfully forced Basarab Laosha to flee to the Ottomans, and in November, Vlad the Impaler was again crowned Voivoda of Wallachia. However, within weeks, Basarab Laosha was back in Wallachia with an Ottoman force behind him. He fought a battle with Vlad near Bucharest, and Vlad the Impaler was finally killed. He was in his late 40s, but had made a name for himself right up along Skanderbeg as one of the greatest enemies the Ottoman Empire would ever face. Through this process, he established a reputation as one of the most brutal rulers and fighters of his age, eventually leading to his immortalization as Count Dracula in Bram Stoker's 19th century Gothic novel, and again, not without reason. He was called the Impaler because he impaled. He was brutal, but he was also brutally effective. He had grown up in Constantinople, in the Ottoman court, right as long aside Mehmed. They had known each other since they were children. He'd grown up alongside the Janissaries. He knew the Ottomans. He could speak their language. He could imitate them and sneak into their camps and set fire and murder. He was a deadly effective person, but now he was gone. And with his passing, Wallachia lost its great anti-Ottoman warrior, making it seem even more likely that the state would settle into Ottoman vassal status and probably full conquest sometime in the future. But for now, the fight for Wallachia was still far from over. Because, again, within weeks of Vlad's death and Basarab Laosha returning to power, Stephen invaded yet again and installed Basarab Laosha's nephew, Basarab Tepelish Cheltanar, on the throne. Now, obviously, I have to explain the meaning of his name because it's fantastic. It literally means Basarab, the little impaler, the young. You just can't ignore a great name like that. But, of course, he's also just known as Basarab IV if you want to be, you know, boring. But in the meantime, the conflict between Hungary and Austria was heating up. So obviously there's the usual chaos in Moldavia. Uh, Wallachia has this revolving door of rulers every single time, right? The Hungarians and the Moldavians want to install a friendly person to rule Wallachia, but every time they get someone on the throne, that person very quickly realizes they really just cannot resist the Ottomans. And so, you know, the outside powers are forced to install a new candidate. But we've seen that Hungary has still been largely absent. I mean, getting involved, but uh, not as involved as it once was in all these affairs. And that is largely because of this conflict between them and Austria. Now, remember, Hungary and Austria had had an awkward relationship ever since King Matthias first took the throne at the death of Frederick, the emperor of Austria's cousin, uh, Ladislaus the Posthumous. Now, Frederick, the Emperor of Austria, he was a potential candidate for the Hungarian throne, and, well, 
When Matthias got the job, it caused some bad feelings between the two. Still, they had resolved their differences with a treaty way back in 1463. Matthias had then built better relations by helping Frederick in his war against Bohemia, but that goodwill was quickly lost. When it came to light that Hungary had that secret agreement with the Ottomans and was allowing them to attack Austria. This led to even more fights until Matthias was finally so upset with Frederick's behavior that he outright invaded in 1477. Clearly feeling that his treatment deserved his full attention and that Austria deserves his attention more than the situation in Wallachia and Moldavia. It's important to point out here that, well, there's an irony here, an irony that, well, Paul Engel in his book, The Realm of St. Stephen, A History of Medieval Hungary, points out that while Matthias was playing the part of the protector of Europe against the Ottomans, at the same time he was, you know, technically an ally of Venice, right? He's talking with the Pope and talking about all the things he'll do against the Ottomans. He's signing secret treaties with them. He's giving them breathing room to do whatever they like in Anatolia, against Moldavia, against Wallachia, and Venice. Throughout this period, there's been a discussion of bringing together a grand crusade against the Ottomans with Hungary being key player. But, but none of it comes to anything because Matthias talks a big game. He talks about all the things he's going to do against the Ottomans, but ultimately, peace with the Ottomans is just too easy. Mehmet's a powerful warrior and King Matthias wants to expand his influence elsewhere where it's simpler to expand his influence. He doesn't want to fight that hard fight. Anyways, back to the war. Within a year, Matthias laid siege to Vienna and forced Emperor Frederick to recognize him as King of Bohemia and pay him 100,000 florins. The anger and resentment which began the conflict, well, you can imagine, burned just as hot at this point, but for now the war was over. Back in Ottoman territory, feeling that even though his army had ultimately retreated without conquering the country, well, Moldavia had been taken care of, and so Mehmet returned his attention to Venice and Albania. Still at war, if you'll remember. It's a very, very, very long war. So the Sultan marched at the head of his army back in that direction in early 1477. He offered Venice to end the war if they would only surrender Škodra, the Albanian fortress of Kruje, and any other fortresses they had in the area. Even having the Sanjak Bey, the kind of governor of Bosnia, invade the mainland around Venice proper just to add to the pressure, tighten the screws a little bit, but Venice refused. Though it's important to point out that contemporary Venetian chroniclers stated that Venice wanted peace very much. It just felt that it could not accept such onerous terms. And so Mehmed marched, conquering the territory of the Lord of Zeta by defeating its lord Ivan Chernoyevich, or Ivan the Black. If you remember, Zeta is kind of roughly modern Montenegro. As Mehmed approached Skodra, in spite of their bad relations previously, Zeta had been a Venetian ally and it was integral to establishing the supply route that had saved the fortress of Skodra in the attack three years previously. So its loss was, well, a very serious loss for the Venetians there. Still, 
Ivan the Black survived. Zeta's leader was still alive and moved his capital uh, rather than giving it to the Ottoman conquest of most of his territory. So he may have been down, but he was not out. He was still ready to fight the Ottomans alongside Venice. The Venetians, for their part, well, they obviously knew the Ottoman force was on its way and had been working hard to prepare the city for a siege. Its defenses were reinforced, the locals were armed, and the stores prepared. By the time Mehmed and his army arrived, it was already May of 1478. Though, as usual, contemporaries vastly exaggerate the numbers of the Ottoman force. There may have been as many as 100,000 soldiers in Mehmed's army, a substantial increase in the smaller armies that the Ottomans had used in Albania previously. So, similar to before in Moldavia, we don't know the exact number, but we do know this was a large, uh, kind of full Ottoman force. Conscious of how their city defeated the Ottomans in the last siege, the Ottomans, well, they blockaded the Boyana River to prevent Venetian supplies from making it to the city from the Adriatic Sea. Once again, we're seeing Mehmet return to his more methodical style of warfare, carefully considering all the mistakes his forces had made previously and guarding against them. Still, the Ottomans faced a brutal task. Shkodra was prepared, well defended, and based on the hill, such that the Ottomans would need to climb up steep ascents to make an attack. Still, the Ottomans began their work, burning the surrounding villages, setting up an artillery battery on a hill where it could bombard the fortress at the same exact height. But where was Mehmed? Now, apparently he had divided his forces and taken one portion of the army to go lay siege to that mightiest of Albanian fortresses, Kruje. Now, this seems wildly ambitious. Remember, Shkodra and Kruje were two of the most powerful fortresses in the region, which the Ottomans had thus far failed to capture a combined four times. But it seems Mehmet was right to be confident. We have few details, but it seems he successfully took the fortress sometime in the summer, after promising the population that their lives would be spared. Having been reduced to eating horses and dogs, the people of Kruje agreed. However, many were beheaded anyways. Around the same time, the Ottomans offered a similar deal to the population of Škodra, but they wisely refused. Now, in early July, Mehmet was arriving to personally oversee operations at Škodra, now the last great fortress of the Venetian-Albanian alliance in all of the Balkans. Still, all wasn't going perfectly well for the Ottomans. Albanian guerrilla forces, as well as the forces of Ivan Chernoyevich, harassed the camped Ottoman army, causing all manner of problems for supplies and morale. Now that the Sultan had arrived and the city had refused to surrender, the siege could begin in earnest. That meant putting those carefully placed cannons and mortars to good use. Eleven cannons and two mortars pummeled the fortress with arrows, regular hard shot, as well as a new innovation being employed for the first time, exploding shells. The defenders had their own artillery and returned fire, but the Ottoman forces still dominated. Now, it was time for a full attack. 
However, each time the Ottomans attacked, the struggle of climbing the hill proved to be too much and they were repulsed. Five times the Ottomans rushed up the hill and five times they were bloodily pushed back down it. Now, Mehmet changed tactics, targeting Ivan Chernyevich's fortress instead and capturing it without too much effort. He then took 300 captives and executed them in sight of the defenders of Skodre. And yet, the fortress held on. At this point, Mehmet seems to have felt that there was little else he could do to personally affect the outcome. He had laid the groundwork, and so now he left an admiral in charge of between 10 and 40,000 soldiers to continue the siege as he returned to the Ottoman capital with the remaining perhaps 40,000 soldiers. In spite of his victory taking Kruje, something he and, his, he and his father had failed to do several times together many years ago, Mehmed still felt the campaign had not met his expectations. Clearly, he wanted the war with Venice over and won. But the strategy Mehmed left with the soldiers at Škodre was a sound one, to simply starve the defenders out. Those defenders knew they could only hold out for so long, as well as the Ottomans, and so they appealed for a relief force from Venice in the fall of 1478. For a time, it seemed the Venetians would send aid, but they changed their mind and decided to end the war instead. The Treaty of Constantinople was signed in the first days of 1479. One component of the treaty was that Škodra would go to the Ottomans, though the citizens' lives were spared. While they were given the option to remain as Ottoman subjects, it seems the vast majority of the population emigrated to Italy. Ivan Chernoyevich was also forced to flee to Italy as Venice hadn't included him in the peace treaty, and so he was still kind of uh, out of luck. Now, Škodra was seen as both a victory and a loss for both sides. The defenders held out. They had not been, you know, outright conquered by military force, and yet the Ottomans ultimately prevailed. Ottoman historian Kemal Pashezade recorded that, quote, hundreds of the infidels and Muslims died each day and hundreds more escaped with wounded heads, swollen with lumps and craters like the surface of the moon, end quote. It was a bit dramatic, but it seems to be a reflection of the great casualties the Ottoman took in their six major assaults on the city. So we know that Škodra was a very bloody affair, and that while the Ottomans were ultimately victorious, it was not without great cost. In the treaty, Venice was allowed to keep three cities in Albania, including Durazzo, which you'll remember is Durachium. However, none of these cities were sort of great fortresses from which they could project power. They were simply ports on the sea to aid in Venetian trade. Thus, although technically Venice would maintain some position in Albania, in practical terms, Albania now belonged to the Ottomans. Elsewhere, the Greek islands of Negroponte and Lemnos were also now Ottoman, which is no surprise, Negroponte for its part had been captured already. But more broadly, this gave the Ottomans real hegemony in the Aegean. They now dominated that sea. 
Also financially, Venice had to pay the Ottomans 100,000 ducats, as well as another 10,000 a year for the right to trade in the Black Sea. And so the end of the war was indeed a major victory for the Ottomans. It had dragged on for 16 long years, often very inconclusively, but now that it was over, not only could the Ottomans focus more resources elsewhere, not that the war ever really stopped them, but more importantly for everyone, trade could return to normal, bringing more income to the Ottoman coffers, as well as the Venetian ones, but obviously the Ottomans could now kind of return to a normal trading relationship with Venice. Then, of course, finally conquering Albania also had its own special significance. An Ottoman chronicler who wrote during this time put it this way, quote, All of the conquests of Sultan Mehmet were fulfilled with the seizure of Shkodra. End quote. Clearly, Shkodra meant a great amount to Mehmet, as well as Albania, because, well, the Ottomans had been fighting there for decades, and their losses counted in the tens of thousands. While resistance to Ottoman rule in Albania would continue on for more than another century, as many Albanians retreated into those inhospitable mountains to fight on, well, at the same time, between 30 and 50% of the Albanian population is thought to convert to Islam over the next century. And this is important for Bulgaria as well, People, I have to point out, they converted for many reasons, including genuine religious belief, tax purposes, wanting to move up in social standing. Forced conversions were exceptionally rare, in spite of what later propagandists would like us to believe. So over time, there was a significant conversion to Islam in Albania, but not likely that it was much forced. In fact, forced conversion, as many kind of Islamic scholars would point out, is very much against the religion. Uh, now, granted, those same scholars will point out that the Ottomans did a great many things that were more or less against the religion, like transforming churches into mosques, something they did in Albania and throughout the Balkans. But I guess if we're going to take a step back, this is all a reminder that humans are complex and history is complex and people will do what they're going to do for a great many reasons. But anyway... Now, now that Albania was conquered, now that the Venetian War was over, the greatest fears of the Pope and all the other Italians were coming true. The Ottomans now had a jumping off point for an invasion of Italy itself. And so next time, we'll see just where Mehmet decides to focus his attention next. Dominant there since his crushing defeat of Akkoyunlu, Maybe he'll go and seek further expansion into Anatolia, the Middle East, or the Levant. Or perhaps he'll return to Moldavia to get further revenge on Stephen the Great. Perhaps he's grown tired of peace with Hungary and will strike out into Central Europe just as its two greatest powers, Austria and Hungary, are at war. Perhaps the first worst fears of the Italians will come to pass and he'll cross the Adriatic and march on Rome. Or maybe he'll decide he's tired of war and wants to uh, relax in his palace in Constantinople. I wouldn't bet on that last one. So, tune in next time to find out. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, Uspech.